are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Kwame Senu, Executive Chairman at the Holding Opinion and Public, an Africa comms expert and a citizen of the world helping people and organizations think strategically about Africa. Good morning, Kwame. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Really grateful to have you here today. Thank you, Suda, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Tell us a bit about yourself, where you grew up, your education, your cultural influences, perhaps. I was born in West Africa in Benin Republic, right beside Nigeria. And I grew up in a multicultural family where my dad shares some Ghanaian origin with Benin and my mom being from Benin. And I have two brothers and two sisters. So it was quite a big family. I went to public school. I'm always proud to say that because public education is now kind of synonym of uh, not being a very good quality. But I went to public school. And then after doing science in high school, I went to university where I took a law degree. And after a while doing world law, that's where I got hooked into the communication through journalism, initially the university and then in a private publication. Being always adventurous and curious, I was always interested in discovering. So I started traveling with my parents. We lived in different parts of the country. And what people always realize about Africa is that the south, for instance, is coastal and the north is almost Sahelian or desertic, a bit arid. People speak different languages, so it's a whole difference. And I remember my first trip to the north of the country, it was in a train. And it was a good experience. As the train was moving forward, I was learning more about the country I belong to. And the people in most part of the world, train station are like shopping malls. And you can see different things being sold in each city and how different they were. And how agriculture is a very important part of the daily lives in, in Africa. Having this diverse background, I think I quickly started opening up to the Anglophone world while I was educated in French. And I was reading things from Ghana, things from Nigeria, and it quickly shaped me into how I describe myself today, born in Africa and world citizen. And beside my job as a journalist, I started working in a bank. And my boss, who was a Nigerian lady, gave me a book. And I know today it is dangerous to say you've been inspired by Donald Trump. But back then, it was a book by Donald Trump called Think Big and Kikas. But I mean, he changed the title to Think Big and Make It Happen. But this book really reshaped my focus around thinking big and thinking beyond what I know, what I take for granted. And she gave me a second book. The second book was Dream from My Father of Barack Obama. So it was a really true, the lady got influenced by the English-speaking world. 
while having a French education, having learned French history, French philosophy, and French way of thinking. And I think the nuances from both sides helped me really better myself. That is so interesting, Kwame. And so much of what you said resonated with me, Kwame, especially when you're talking about a train journey. Trains were how we used to travel across the country and appreciate the differences in the country. What is it, Kwame, that you love about the work that you do now? And what do you do now? I would define myself as a communication strategist. In Africa, it's very difficult to be a specialist like Someone from the UK will tell me, oh, I do health comms, work in financial comms, etc. But I would define myself as a comms strategist, having worked across different types of clients, whether it's government, non-profit, private organization, association, special interest group, individuals. And... I will just give you an example to tell you how I love my work. You know, during COVID, a good friend of mine and a client became the mayor of the third city in our country. And in my home country, because I, I live in Cote d'Ivoire and uh, I'm from the Republic. And remember then COVID happened, nobody knew how to react and everything was very centralized. Government were ever powerful. And we had a conversation, you are a mayor, how can you make a positive change quickly? And out of that brainstorming came the idea of trying to influence government and financial partners of the country into supporting directly the community. Because remember, the response was everywhere. It was national. Yeah. So we drafted an op-ed, read and reread. It was a political space. He was just becoming a mayor. He didn't want to create any wrong perception. And yeah. we published it. And I can tell you that within one month, the funds were made available. I think his community got something like 100,000 US dollar, but all the communities in the country got over $1.5 million. And they could effect change directly in the communities where it was needed the most because government were more busy buying masks, buying ventilators and all that, yeah. when people were deprived of their livelihood. And it appeared to me that uh, it's what I love about this job, the ability to impact, to impact positively. And it can translate quite effectively in such case. Sometimes it takes longer, but at the end of the day, PR and communication have been responsible of some of the most positive change we can see in the world. And I expect PR to still drive this change, especially for my continent, Africa. That's true. That is such a wonderful example, Kwame. I agree that the opportunity that we have to support people, enable change in our communities is immense. So moving yeah. on, according to you, what are the biggest challenges you face while working with global international team members, partners, clients, and how do you educate these teams and clients? You know, Africa is not a monolith, that even Francophone Africa is not one homogenous group. And we discussed this when we met in Dubai. Yes, I think the first challenge, and I'm sure everybody who's worked on the global stage faced it, is the challenge for most people to adapt to different environments. I am fortunate not to have this challenge. If you see me walking in the streets of New York 
or in the hotel of Lagos, I'll quickly adapt. Sometimes I even adopt the local slang. I'm just coming back yeah. from Morocco. And yeah. I was greeting people in Arabic. And they were all amazed, like, how this guy is able to do that? But yeah. yes, the, the challenge is there is a kind of refusal of adaptation. People are not interested in that. They would claim they want to work in a multicultural world. They want to learn, but they are not really interested. Those are just empty words. They don't want to understand the differences. Like PR is not the same. I mean, the media landscape is not the same. So there are so many changes that I believe before starting, anybody should first educate him or herself on what is going on locally rather than trying to import directly. The second challenge is... Obviously, language. In Africa, I mean, I'm based in Abidjan where we speak French. And a lot of my requests are in English or sometimes even other languages like people from Vietnam that I worked with once. And they don't understand French. They don't seem to understand that there are nuances that English cannot carry uh, into French. So it's always a challenge. And the third and the most painful is this perception of Africa. I think decades of media brainwashing, and I don't blame the media. They kind of serve global geopolitical interest and all that. But they've brainwashed people into thinking that there's a so little good out of Africa, and that little good is only music. You know, yeah. <laughs> I joke usually saying that when you are an African, a black guy, and you're not having dreadlocks on your head, and you're not singing, you don't have tattoo on your body, You kind of look alien when you travel outside the continent. People don't know what to exactly do of you because they're so used to framing you in that category. But again, and to your point, education is the key. And I don't think blaming people, fighting them, complaining is the solution. It's education. And a lot of us are now realizing that patience is also part of that education process. So what we do is that The first time we engage with a client, if they accept, of course, some don't have time for that, but we take them through an understanding of the continent, how it is different. We call it Africa briefing, an understanding of the continent, its geography, its history, the languages, uh, how people are different. And let me just give you another example. Yesterday, I was talking to a client and I was telling him, The president is going to be at this event, and I think it would make sense that you send someone senior to attend this event because this president, we call it in French, a doyen, like kind of an influential figure in the region, and he wouldn't be happy to be dealing only with a local MD or this sort of thing. And this is the kind of uh, small details that make the difference in government relations. And I believe it's the same in the U.S. You won't expect the Ministry of Transportation of one country to travel to Washington and be received by Joe Biden. It's applied everywhere, but people tend to believe that because it's Africa, it's substandard, we should accept that. So we have to educate. And that is really about bringing more African voices out, bringing more information, bringing more publication. And I encourage my team I challenge myself to write books from 2023 because we need more publication and more voices from Africa talking about African things. And I am among those people. We are tired of the African experts who desperately don't look African. And despite 
10, 20, 30 years of academic studies, there are things that you can only understand when you were born in and you really understand the language. Absolutely. And I think the first thing, like you said, is educate yourself. There is enough to read online, then get an expert from the continent. There are like tons of people who you can get in touch with and educate yourself. Essentially, spend some time and energy doing that. It's not difficult to do so. We've discussed this question also before. But why is it that clients assume that talent has to be paid below par in Africa for work, similar to other markets? And how can agencies start pushing back and also educating clients about this? It is to do with respect for skills and capabilities. And again, driven by agencies headquartered internationally who make a lot of money, but when they have to share some of that money for similar work, they're not willing to shell it out. Thank you for raising this point and it's given me an opportunity to talk about it. And I hope we can have more discussion in organizations like PRCA or ICO around it. Mm. You're very right. This is all part of the global perception of Africa. Africa is substandard. Africa is cheap. People don't need much in Africa, which is wrong. Africa, cost of operation for any B2B services provider is higher in Africa than it is in the UK. Traveling between, I mean, Abidjan, if I have to go and deal with a matter in uh, Guinea, it will cost me $500 or $600, like an economy ticket. That is just one hour and a half from here. But I think it's also part of keeping the money outside Africa. They have reports from measures about cost of living in Africa and all that. And they know the numbers, but they just want to keep the money where they think it belongs. It also has to do with capital. Whoever owns a company wants to keep the maximum for him. But how can we start educating clients? I think the work starts at home. Let our partner agencies, the network we are part of, start treating us with respect and making sure that when they're talking to the client, they do not expect the client to see Africa as substandard. And again, to this point, you can look at when foreign experts travel to Africa, they are paid even more than they can expect in the U.S. We've seen so many situations where after working in Africa for five years, experts are no longer happy to go back because they are going to get the big house with the garden, the Jeep from Toyota, (laughs) and so many packages, the children's school fees, the insurance, the life insurance, and all that. It's actually cheaper to employ an African who is here, based here, than to bring a foreign expert. But they still do that. They pay them decently. So they realize that working in Africa is not cheaper. But working in Africa by Africans should be cheaper. It shouldn't be the case. It's wrong. And I think it starts within us agencies. When we are making quotes, when we are sending financial proposal, we should really be specific about we treat everybody equally. If we are billing hours, let the rates be the same for everyone. If we are billing overhead, let's make sure that we listen to the African agencies because clients are going to anyway pay. Second, and I want to take some ownership on that, we also on the continent should work, engage, lobby to show people numbers, data, 
not only complain, because sometimes I feel we also complain too much without providing data. And this is a job to be done. We should show clients how an operation look like on the continent. Like I was talking to a friend in the US and she was like, why do you have to do all this for an event? And I'm like, the hotel doesn't offer that service. I have to bring everything, the sound system, the video guy, everything I have to do. So you can understand that I will build more hours than someone in the US who can just sign a contract with the hotel and the hotel take care of everything in the background. And again, it comes to what you mentioned before, education. We need to start providing data to people outside the continent. And I'm very happy of the work PRCA Africa is doing in showing the state of the industry. We should also start thinking of how to show clients what is cost of operation, how business is conducted, how much it costs to run a successful campaign and all that, so that they understand and they grow in that direction. That is a very balanced way of articulating what is required from clients and from agency leaders. Moving on to the next question, Kwame, how important is cultural intelligence awareness amongst teams and leaders in today's world? On a scale of one to 10? I mean, I would say nine and nine and a half, because we tend to live in this single village now. You can wake up in Africa and know exactly what's happening at the G20 summit in Indonesia. I think I'm part of that last generation who was not too connected. When I was a young kid, we only got news from the radio and the TV news was very short. It was 1 p.m. at midday and 8 p.m. in the evening and that's all. And it was 30 minutes. But today, through internet, we can know what is happening everywhere. Like yesterday, I received a storm alert in Chicago because my cousin is living there. And this makes you deal, contact, engage with people from all over the world. So the first skill, I believe, is cultural intelligence. How do I engage with a Japanese? How different is an Indian who is living in the UK? Because it's not the same with an Indian who is based in India. How people in Latin America see things like respect? How do you address them? How do I reach from a country like Benin, where you can't be too friendly, you can't be too forward with people, to a country like Cote d'Ivoire. You know, in French, we have a difference between using uh, the second person of singular or using the second person of plural as a sign of respect. So how do you switch between those nuances? How do I engage with someone who thinks in Swahili, but then speaks English? And different backgrounds, different people, so different expectations. And when you are not culturally intelligent, it's become challenging to work. Because even here in West Africa, we see Indian in company, American in company, Italian, Japanese, Chinese, everywhere. And I think what we leaders need to do generally is to be more humble. Yeah. I always say that the danger of leadership is that you reach leadership positions usually after some accomplishment. And it can give you a sense of self-worth that can be dangerous in accepting others and their differences. And this culture of humility, this culture of willingness to learn would really help into making cultural intelligence a common skill. 
how do I discuss climate change from London to Sao Tome, an island off the coast of Africa? It's really important because we are going to advise clients who usually rely on us for this cultural intelligence. They actually need us to provide the information. So I feel it is really one of the areas we should dedicate education. And I want to talk about the work done by Robin de Villiers, who is the chair of BCW Africa. She started educating people on the cultural map. And uh, I was really impressed uh, uh, listening to her mentioning how people are not really aware and it creates conflict and cultural intelligence as a tool to prevent conflict. Some really great points there and very interesting on the leadership part on how leaders, by the time they get to that position, they can have a disconnect and not a very open mind to thinking about differences that we have within our workplaces in terms of people, their experience, etc. What are the big trends that you're seeing in a post-COVID Africa? And how big or transformational do you expect the future of work to be in Africa, because across the world, there are so many conversations happening about the future of work. Generally, we see it to be hybrid. You're never going to go back to normal. You can't go back in time anyway. But we need to know more about what's happening on the continent. I don't think we have a context on that. We're making a lot of assumptions about it because everywhere in the UK it's happening or in India it's happening or in the US it's happening. But these are assumptions. So would love to hear from you. Yes, I always smile about this particular question of future of work and the hybrid and all that, because in Africa, well, a lot of people will just push this narrative, but the, the situation is quite simple. If you look at social survey in Africa, what you realize is job is still the number one problem in Africa. And we have a population on average below the age of 35, which is 75%. These people need a job. They need a job and they don't even have a a demand. They just want to get work. What we saw with COVID is that, of course, there was this time between March and July 2020 where everybody had to kind of use a dual hybrid mode. But what I am seeing increasingly is that everybody is going back to work fully for those who are working. But let me talk to you about something different that happened. What happened with COVID is actually that it opened job possibilities to people in Africa on the global market. In Nigeria, there are graphic designers, web designers, developers, IT engineers that are now operating remote for companies in the UK, in the US. So because remote work was now possible in so many organizations, in Europe or in the US, so many African talents could apply for jobs and even get them and live off it. What is less told also is that even us on the continent, I have five people on full remote. COVID helped me be attractive to them as a company. So they accepted to work with us. They are fully remote. They have one or two travel to the HQ every year. That's all. They work in fully remote. It can be challenging sometimes, but it's also made possible to close the talent gap and skills. The fear I have, however, is that this trend might affect local talent because tomorrow, what will stop an Indian to work in Africa remotely? 
a Japanese, a Chinese, and the few jobs exist in <laughs> might be gone forever. And company might be less willing to invest in training people because that was what was happening. Company initially would recruit people as intern and train them properly so that they become good staff. But if company can get people ready to work remotely, they wouldn't invest much. So I think it's a conversation that policymakers should look at. And are we going to be fully remote in country? I'm not sure we can do that. So many people have challenged around the stability of electricity. Even South Africa, that was an exception on the continent, is now dealing with load shedding. People have challenge with having a peaceful, quiet work environment at home. You work from home when you are living with many siblings or cousins and everybody is going about his meetings and all that. In the Western world, it may work where you have only two or three people in the house. And also going to work, it's part of the, I think, the social value for people. Part of Africa is really culturally Christian now. And Christianity plays a very big emphasis on working. In the Bible, it's mentioned that you should sweat to make money or to eat bread. And that's influenced people in really the way they see themselves. It would be awkward to just be in-house throughout the day. Even when I'm with my friend, I make them laugh. And I say, if I spend all my days in-house, my neighbor and even uh, my landlord might even wonder how I'm going to pay the rent <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. they don't see any activity. So yeah. it's really culturally defining for people to go out. Yeah. We are with a young population. They need to know people. They need to connect. They need to interact, build their network. So even if it was given the possibility to them, which we've done anyway, we've reshaped our office in a co-working style. But still, what we see is that people prefer to come to the office. So I can bring that perspective is the, the aspect that we are not really making it a big conversation here, remote work. So interesting. We touched on this issue in your initial responses. Do you believe it is critical to increase representation of experts from the continent on global discussions in the media, especially whether it is climate change, the current energy crisis, the war in Ukraine? to get perspectives from countries on the continent. It feels like Africa doesn't have too much of a voice because there are a few people who are speaking about it, but not enough. Thank you again for raising that. And I'll explain uh, patiently so that people understand. I am a lawyer by academic background. And what I learned in law school is how to think. It's what I always highlight to people who say, oh, but there are academics, their study in Africa and all that. There are frameworks for everything on this planet. Those yes. frameworks are always full of the biases of those who design them. Even the science has a lot of cultural components. So how can you be sure that the person is accurate when he is not from the continent? We have so many Africans who've studied, who's been in a position to understand things and all that. There are many intellectuals from Africa. So it is a real issue to have African voices on global debates. And I know there have been so many deceptive ways to prevent that. There is the framing that Africa is culture, music, and dance. So most existing African voices are in the cultural space. 
There is also these uh, visa policies that make it difficult for an African, even willing to go and talk and go and represent, to travel. The UK embassy just published an announcement saying that if you are going to travel to the UK, you need to apply for visa three months before. That means leaving my passport in the UK embassy for three months. How can I do that? How can I afford to do that? I don't have two passports, and that's the situation. So imagine that there is a debate about Africa in the UK, and I want to go. If I cannot have three months prior notice, I can't even go. But the challenge is not even there. A lot of time we say it is time for Africa, but it's actually wrong, because it has always been time for Africa. Those who came explore the continent, split it into portion, and shared it among powers, knew that it was time for Africa. Those who take the slaves from Africa knew that it was time for Africa. What these people need to know today is that it is time for Africans. The population is growing. The youth is really wise and informed. So if you don't integrate African perspective on things, you might be at odds with this African audience. And it can have ripple effects like rejection, like antagonism, like even rejection of Western value. We are now seeing in research that Africans are now questioning the Western capitalistic development model. Presidents on the continent are now questioning democracy itself because for so long, there was no African nuances to a little bit change. Analysts are predicting that Africans will be 3 billion by the end of this century. What does that mean? It won't be possible to ignore them the same way it's no longer possible to ignore Asian, Indian, Chinese, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indonesian. So I think that is what people should keep in mind. Without African perspective on global topics, there would be a rejection. I believe in cooperation. I believe in democracy. I believe in globalization. But it can only work if all voices, like in democracy, can be heard. It can only work when all voices can be heard, and that is missing. Now, the question is, oh, we don't have so much African experts. We do have African experts. The African CDC did a fantastic job during COVID, more than so many equivalent or peers across the globe. When South Africa was quick to detect the Omicron variant, it's only got punishment in retaliation. Instead of appreciating the expertise and the skills of people in South Africa who dealt with HIV before coronavirus. Yeah. So I think whether it is in political sciences, whether it is in economy, there is a fantastic professor of economy in Harvard called Celeste Monga. He's a Cameroonian. Very brilliant, very down-to-earth understand Africa, understand the Western world. There is another one in Princeton, Leona Wanchekon. There are so many on various topics you have African who are qualified, experts, who are even teaching in Western universities, but who are not given the stage. True. This is a big thing. I think representation and having a voice on the table on all of these important issues we've seen with COVID, none of those issues you can solve on your own. So countries have to cooperate, continents have to cooperate, 
and we have to get the voices of people that are cooperating and the example that you spoke about the omicron variant that was there south africa did a commendable job on identifying so quickly uh, the variant and that's because of their expertise and the response was totally unexpected moving on to the next question what according to you are the big opportunities for doing business in africa i think the first and obvious opportunity in africa is that so many things have not been done yet in so many space so there is almost a blue ocean strategy applicable in many industries on the continent except maybe cement and fmcgs that is the number one knowing that almost everywhere whether it is service to home service to businesses service to government agro industry foods food processing distribution supply chain transportation infrastructure financing and banking retail all of them are really at the beginning of their growth that's why so many of these uh, management consulting company are now calling africa the last frontier of growth and anybody who is willing to understand unlearn and relearn in africa can quickly take advantage of it i've been working in the marketing services industry for a while now on average we were growing 50% wherever i've been whichever company i've worked in on average we were growing 50% wow that is unprecedented in so many regions growing over 5 years at 50% you look at also what africa can provide to the world whether it is discovering new things leveraging on the wealth of culture and some people are obviously taking advantage of that netflix for instance signing around stories of africa to be made into documentaries movies or series you can understand that they've already run the analysis and they understand so yeah. for me the big opportunity would be first services to people the basic one from healthcare to food to transportation to living in a urban setting because the population is growing the second uh, set of opportunity is african exports african export is a big one whether it is cultural whether it is a, a Uh, manufacturing and the third opportunity i believe is also helping africa to develop technologies that can protect the planet because this is a conversation that i want to have here there are opportunities on the continent the continent is aware of climate change and abidjan where i am faced flooding this year that killed more than 20 people just in the city and there are so many that were not accounted for so we are aware of climate change what we want is to find ways to develop while using uh, our resources in a clean way so the effort should not be oh africans you should stop having children you should stop developing you should stop willing to use resources you don't have to touch your gas you should continue exporting copper a lithium to us no this will not work it wouldn't work even if the leaders agree to do that so opportunities are there and to close on this one i want to say that the biggest opportunity is to help africa develop while using technology a lot of research is needed let's invest in those technology 
the technologies we are using to go to mass, let's dedicate a part of them into finding solutions for Africa. There is so much to unpack in there. And there is so much of opportunity. I saw your post the other day. You shared an article by the Nigerian president on COP27 and the rhetoric around climate change and, you know, how Africa is treated in conversation. So it's very... Yes, the president of Nigeria, President Muhammadu Buhari, during COP27 was paying down an op-ed about how not to talk about climate change to an African. (laughs) And uh, I think this was a widely acclaimed. And again, if our partners are doing some social listening, they would understand that people are frustrated. They can see the reaction to what the president said. And let me quote what I put on my LinkedIn. Don't tell Africa that the world cannot afford the climate cost of its hydrocarbons. And then fire up whole stations whenever Europe feels an energy pinch. Don't tell the poorest in the world that their marginal energy use will break the carbon budget only to sign off on new domestic permits for oil and gas exploration. It gives the impression your citizens have more of a right to energy than Africans. And this night I read on Twitter that Africa, when they did the compound analysis of the last 250 years since the industrial revolution, Africa only contributed 0.01%. That's less of a hundredth of percent. You can imagine the whole continent. Yesterday I read another op-ed that we shouldn't be challenged in talking about Africa overpopulation. And I was shocked. We are just 1.2 or 1.3 billion in this whole continent. I know. (laughs) People are like, oh, African women are born in too many children and all that. And I want to ask, should we have this conversation seriously? Things will gradually change. The cost of history has never been a straight one. It goes through so many changes. But it seems that someone is deliberately making this belief that the future of the world is on the shoulders of Africans. Africans should refuse development so that the world doesn't go extinct. Africans should refuse uh, any form of industrialization. I have in front of me title like, should Africa put citizens above the climate crisis? So why is everything suddenly about Africa? Why do people in Europe or in the US don't stop uh, using their car and polluting? Why don't they take buses or train? Why everybody is talking about electric vehicle and not a uh, 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 train, which is less polluting? Let's all stop using cars then and use train so that we stop polluting. Let's stop so many things that we do. Let's stop uh, buying an iPhone every year then. But don't make the whole responsibility of the world rest on the shoulder of Africa. Because people outside the continent have to realize that African leaders have other challenges at home. They have a very big young population that needs everything from healthcare to education to job. They cannot afford to tell these people to wait. I am not sure I want to envy any African president because every day he is forced to think of how to tackle numerous challenges. The COVID and the Ukraine war compound effect 
are now making the cost of borrowing spike through the roof for the Africans. And even when we talk to the climate crisis, there is still this question of financing the climate adaptation. Nobody wants to finance. And I actually uh, said uh, yesterday on Twitter that the money is never going to come. Nobody should expect the U.S. to pay for Africans to adapt. Europe, they will just promise, but they will not do it. Because where will they get the money from? What will they tell their domestic audience to take money from their country and give Africa for adaptation? They wouldn't do that. So it is important that Africa develop itself through an industrialization that is respectful of the environment. That needs research. That needs a common joint effort. People in Africa need to eat. They need to dress. They need to have jobs. And it is non-negotiable. Absolutely. Because an Africa in chaos would not be an easy place for the whole world. True. You know, on the just transition and the fund for transitioning, I read somewhere that at the end of COP26, they had around $100 million and they need to actually have many billion dollars to actually exactly. have any real impact. So they're not serious about it. They keep talking about it and then keep putting pressure on the countries like uh, India and countries in Africa or even Latin America, actually. And that's why it's important to create awareness about this, that these conversations experts have about that, oh, the climate change and we are doing so much and these countries are not doing enough. That's not true. Read your facts and then come back and have that dialogue. Moving on to the next question, Kwame, how can brands take advantage of these opportunities? I always say Africa is a long-term game and those who are expecting quick return shouldn't venture on the continent. But look at this, 75% of the population below the age of 35. A little economic development and in the next 20 to 30 years, you have one of the largest consumer population in the world combined. As the world grows old, Africa will have the workforce and the consumers of the world. Who would want to miss that? Who would want to miss almost a billion of people ready to consume? So brands have really an opportunity. But what we are seeing increasingly, and I'm saying this as a communication professional, there is growing insatisfaction among the African youth around the Western government and their brands. We communicators should educate our clients in long-term communication in Africa so that as their government are taking policies, they don't alienate their reputation in the long term. I am sitting in West Africa and France, for instance, who is the former colonial power, has had the reputation totally trashed. And French brands are now starting to suffer it. And this is a situation that I see, if not taken care of, can spark into other countries like the UK, like even the US. And numbers are showing that people are gradually now preferring China than the US, which is not a bad thing. Africa is big for everybody to be there. We welcome the Indian, we welcome the Chinese, the Americans, everybody. So the idea is that we should, as communicators, educate our clients on the challenges their brand might face in the future if 
they don't start positively engaging with Africans now. How can Brown take advantage of Africa? They can start researching and educating themselves about Africa, first thing. Second, they can empower the Africa department. We always see Brown with one or two people dedicated to a 54 countries continent and 1.2 billion people. I understand Africa is not the largest provider of revenue, but if you want to communicate in Africa, you better do it well or not do it at all. How can one person address a whole continent? I've seen that so many times in so many multinational who would rather devote 50 or 100 people to a full country. How they can take advantage of Africa, I think also it is investing in education. Let me quote a fantastic book I read some years back called The India Way, wrote by some professor of the Wharton School. And they describe how all these big Indian companies made it mandatory to train their staff at the beginning. We always complain about the skill gap in Africa, but one way of closing that skill gap is to put in place a, a training. And I love something we did at BCW Africa. It was the BCW starting block where we have two cohorts every year for three months to train people who are transitioning from a degree in communication into the agency world. You yeah. don't learn to prepare a pitch doc in the university. You don't necessarily know to put together a media list in the university. So giving them practical skills has been really beneficial for us, whether in the South Africa HQ or the affiliate across the continent. And the last part is really onboarding more and more African. African don't want to be black faces in high places. No, Africa wants to make a positive contribution to their continent. And there is a possibility by onboarding them, responsabilizing them, and giving them the trust to be advisor. Because then what will be the point of onboarding African? I have been, even as an agency, so many times people come to me and say, oh, we want an African agency. You guys know the market. And then when it is the time for strategic thinking, they say, oh, we will come back to you with our plan. They do the strategy and then they just send us the plan. What is the point of recruiting us when you don't even want to listen to our insight? So those are really how I see international brand taking advantage of the opportunities on the continent. I'm not saying that everything about Africa should be exclusively African, but I'm saying representation, inclusiveness is really important. We are not saying Africans are going to New York or London or Paris to take over one day like the Indians are doing in the U.S. But what we are saying is that onboard Africans, listen to them, take their nuances and their insights into account when you are planning so that it is beneficial for you and it is beneficial for us. It doesn't have to be exclusive. It can be beneficial for everybody. That is true. We are at the last question now, Kwame. What or who inspires or motivates you? I, I will surprise you. It's nobody famous, but it, it's my dad. It's my dad because he's had a simple story. He was an orphan who was adopted and made everything to rise in the society 
until he had me and my four siblings and making us good. I believe we are good people. And how does he inspire me? It's because he's been resilient throughout his life. And I believe in the world of crisis we are living in now, we need to learn resilience. That's how he inspired me. He's always worked for a company, never created his own company. But he gives me some perspective, and it's always boiled down to resilience, the need to persevere. I believe instant gratification has uh, killed our ability to persevere. And really, his history, his personal story, his commitment at work, his resilience has always been really something that motivates me into doing more, applying the same rules and tactics. And I encourage people to learn to be resilient. I believe the world is trying to teach us to be fragile, but we live in a very tough world. And we shouldn't forget that we live in a tough world and preparing ourselves to deal with the challenges and rise above them is more important than being uh, fragile. True. That's so beautiful. It's so good to hear how your father inspires you. Quite a few of the people that I have spoken to and I ask them this question, a lot of them look at people closer to themselves in their own circle, parents or their friends or somebody they've worked with who inspires them because of how they behave or the values that they live their lives with. Thank you very much, Kwame, for being here today and for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast and sharing your deep experience and insights. I'm hoping, you know, that in conversation and in partnership with you, we are able to showcase experts from Africa. Yes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.